What is up, movie lovers? Welcome back to another edition of No Content for Old Men. This is the podcast where every week I give you reviews of the latest movies and some streaming suggestions for your weekend. As always, I'm your host, Matt Craig. Thank you so much for listening. And this week, we've got an exciting announcement. I'm going to Sundance, or at least kind of. Uh, the Sundance Film Festival is obviously one of the biggest events on the movie calendar. And because of COVID-19, it's being held remotely this year, totally online. So I decided to crash the party. And for the next five days, I will be collecting all the sights and sounds. Hopefully, you know, taking the pulse of the American independent cinema industry and collecting some of those hidden gems you guys uh, come to expect from me. So um, you guys will have to stay tuned for a full report next week. But included in this episode, we've got two movies that I saw on the opening night of the festival Uh, as well as the streaming suggestions that I provide every week, something new, something old, and something to stream. But until then, let's talk Sundance. In the 1980s, Robert Redford established the Sundance Institute as an antidote to the Hollywood landscape that was becoming dominated by massive and increasingly thoughtless blockbusters. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) Redford's dream was to create a laboratory where promising artists could develop their projects while remaining independent from the prying hands of the studio system. That dream exists in the form of Sundance Labs, with mixed results, I'll add. But it wasn't until a few years later when Sundance took over the nearby film festival in Park City, Utah, that Redford began to realize his game-changing vision. The Sundance Film Festival changed the course of American film history, providing a platform both to launch the careers of some of our most influential filmmakers and a path to economic viability for artistic-minded films that aren't backed by international conglomerates. Out of all the festivals in the world, it's, one, it's the one where true, genuine discoveries still happen, said Damien Chazelle in a montage during Thursday's opening ceremony of this year's festival. Steven Soderbergh, Quentin Tarantino, the Coen brothers, Wes Anderson, David O. Russell, Richard Linklater, Paul Thomas Anderson, and Ryan Coogler are just some of the directors who got their start at Sundance's past. In recent years, the festival has debuted some of my favorite movies of all time. Whiplash, Get Out, The Big Sick, and last year, Palm Springs. For that reason, attending Sundance has always been on the bucket list for a cinephile like me. Even before I recently read a 500-page book on the history of Sundance and the independent film scene of the 90s, Decades of success has elevated Sundance into something more than its original mission. These days, it's not uncommon to see movies premiere with budgets of $20 or $30 million and major distribution already secured. Park City's Main Street is plastered with sponsorships and promotions for major brands. The inevitable creep of commerce gains more and more ground every year. But this year, COVID-19 forced the festival to go all online, and with it, a retreat to some semblance of artistic purity. We live in a world where mega blockbusters like Wonder Woman 1984 and Godzilla vs. Kong, (laughs) which don't even get me started about that trailer, are being released digitally, just the same as any Sundance micro-indie. With the playing field leveled, many of the movies that have already secured distribution decided not to show up with, of course, the notable exception of Judas and the Black Messiah, which I'm very excited about. And those sponsored events, they now exist on some far-off webpage, avoided with the click of a mouse. 
Festival attendance has even been democratized, open not just to those select few in Park City, but to anyone with an internet connection. I'm happy to say that that includes me. Over the next five days, I'm going to be collecting all the sights and sounds that Sundance has to offer, hopefully taking the pulse of American independent cinema, as well as tracking down those hidden gems you all have come to expect from me. That's going to require wading through waves of BS, as Sundance movies carry the stigma of believing they are capable of solving the world's problems. Freedom of creative expression is a powerful and necessary response to oppression and autocracy, said festival director Tabitha Jackson at the opening ceremony. I'm also going to do my best to avoid the phenomenon of festival high, where everyone is so excited to be attending that everything they see is amplified by orders of magnitude. Although, fair warning, I legit cried during the first movie of opening night, so (laughs) this might be easier said than done. If you want to follow my journey real-time, I will be updating a thread on Twitter, which you can find at Mr. Matt Craig on Twitter. So I'll be updating this Twitter thread every day with my thoughts and reactions, and I'm also going to be ranking every movie I've seen at the festival on my Letterboxd account, which is going to be Letterboxd, L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D.com slash mcraig, and I will be ranking every movie I see at the festival. Next Friday, hopefully, I'll be able to give you guys a full report. But until then, (laughs) I'm dancing, sun dancing. All right, on the opening night of the festival, which was Thursday night, I got to see two movies um, that I was actually pretty impressed by, both of them. I don't know when they'll be released, and I'll definitely be recycling these back up to the top uh, right before they're going to be released to the mass public. But I got to at least tell you about them now because I'm pretty excited about it, especially this first one, which is Coda. Now, I certainly did not expect to shed real, sentimental, joyful tears during the very first screening of the festival, but alas, I'm human. This coming-of-age family drama has a familiar arc, one may even say formulaic, but you've likely never seen it star a child of deaf adults, CODA, C-O-D-A. The level of authenticity is off the charts here, from the casting of deaf actors to portray a father, mother, and brother, surrounding main character Ruby, the only one in the family who can hear, and even Ruby is being played by an actor with deaf parents. That actor, Amelia Jones, makes a strong case for breakout star of the festival. She's magnetic and charismatic and unbelievably empathetic. Her family is hilarious and irreverent, and their love for each other will warm your heart and wet your cheeks. (laughs) This is the second powerful example this year, after Sound of Metal, of deaf stories on the big screen, and I hope it will not be the last. The other movie I saw is Censor. Now, I've never been the biggest fan of slasher movies or other hardcore genre fare playing in Sundance's Midnight category, but this movie does for slashers what Knives Out did for whodunits, cleverly subverting and homaging the genre simultaneously. It's crafted in meticulous period detail, a mid-80s London where a movie censor stands against the video nasties craze. If exposure to violent movies corrupts the minds of viewers, what does it do to the censors who watch them all day long? That question is tested when our main character finds a movie whose plot closely mirrors her own trauma. As you might expect, heads will roll.
All right, this week, something old to stream. I'm talking about Pennies from Heaven. came out in 1981. Now, in that time, when it came out in 1981, this brazen homage to golden era MGM musicals was seen as a stale leftover, and fans couldn't overcome the incongruence of the movie's tragic tone and its lead actor, Steve Martin, who was, at the time, the biggest stand-up comedian in the world. To watch the movie now is to appreciate a relic of an era that was already bygone when it was being made, and that wistful nostalgia plays into the story of a man wishing his life played out like the songs of Bing Crosby or the graceful dances of Fred Astaire. Instead, it's one disaster after another, and everyone he touches falls into destitution or prostitution, though in this case, if your pimp is played by Christopher Walken, is life really that bad? Even if you don't enjoy the movie, I promise you won't get the anthemic title track out of your head for at least a week. Pennies from Heaven. All right, something to stream this week. I've got two suggestions for you. The first one is Hollywood Land, which is now streaming on Showtime. I was listening this week to the incredibly entertaining and revealing podcast interview that Ben Affleck did with The Hollywood Reporter's Brandon Katz and didn't realize the role that this movie played in resurrecting Affleck's career from the depths of his tabloid-driven demise, at least the first time around. Similar to Pennies from Heaven, this movie is a time capsule from a previous generation, aping the style and story of a very classic golden era noir mystery. Affleck plays an actor who's famous but not respected, really not too much of a stretch from 90s era Affleck himself, whose death is deemed a suicide until a down-on-his-luck detective played by Adrian Brody tries to uncover the conspiracy laid by the fixers at MGM Studios. As a huge fan of noir, I was all in. The other movie is The One I Love, which is now streaming on Netflix, If you've been a consistent newsletter reader, you know by now what I mean when I tell you this movie was produced by the Duplass brothers. (laughs) Small budget, limited cast, literally three characters, and a killer concept. A couple, played by Mark Duplass and Elizabeth Moss of Mad Men and Invisible Man fame, tries to revive their struggling marriage by taking a trip to a rental house that their therapist, played by Ted Danson, recommends only to find the location isn't the peaceful getaway they had imagined. This movie is good, but unfortunately steers away from the deep questions generated by its awesome premise, which I won't spoil. Instead, doubling down on the twisty plot and focusing on the thriller aspects of the movie. It's like filling up on appetizers. Fun in the moment, but ultimately kind of unsatisfying. All right, guys, that's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you, as always, for listening to No Content for Old Men. I'm your host, Matt Craig. I'm certainly going to be busy the next few days knocking out several movies a day, (laughs) and I could not be happier about it. Um, So, yeah, I appreciate you guys supporting me, and um, check out the Twitter thread. Check out the Letterboxd page if you want to follow uh, my happenings at Sundance. Can't wait to tell you guys about it next Friday. And guys, until then, I guess I'll see you at the movies.